Good morning. Have you ever had a time in your life when you doubted God? Or maybe a time in your life where you were really angry with God? I had a time like that many years ago. And it led to probably a decade of really dark times. My mother had a first cousin named Jane. And they were born just a few months apart from each other. Jane was an only child and my mother's sister was born several years after her. So it took a while uh, before there was another child in my mother's house. So the two of them grew up almost like sisters in the same town. They played together. My mother always used to use Jane as an example. uh, My grandmother would say to my mother, you go outside and you're outside two minutes and you're filthy dirty and Jane can play all day and not get dirty. But they grew up together. And our families were very close because of that. But when Jane got to be in her early to mid-40s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she had the operation and, and went through the mastectomy and everything. And, and the cancer was gone, at least for a while. But then it returned. And it was uh, near Christmas time. And our families got together and and we saw Jane, as it turns out, it was the last time I would see her alive. And she was not looking well. And, you know, of course, she had the wig and everything like that from the chemotherapy. And it was only a couple of weeks later, early in that January, where she went downhill very quickly and died. And of course, we were all very upset. We had, had calling hours at the funeral home there, and a lot of people came. She had been a school teacher, so so many people came through there. And my great-uncle, who was in his mid-80s at the time, was just devastated. He was heartbroken, nearly collapsed there at the calling hours. The next morning, the funeral, we got a phone call before we left the house, and he was too heartbroken to even come. And I sat there at the funeral, and I was listening to the pastor there speak. And to me, what he was giving was just uh, platitudes. I don't even think he really knew her. He'd been in that church for maybe six months. And so what he had to say really didn't reflect her very much. And I sat there listening, and I was getting more and more upset. And then I was thinking about my great uncle who was so devastated, and I just got angry. I got got so angry when it was time for us to go up to view the, the casket one last time at the end of the service. I was just physically shaking. I was so upset. And as we were riding in the car to go um, to have a meal afterwards, I was thinking, and I said, you know, there's so many awful people in this world. Lord, why did you have to take Jane? And then I got thinking more about it, and I got so upset and angry that I said, a God who would do this just couldn't even exist. And so that's how I lived for the next 10, 12 years. I was convinced God didn't exist. I was so angry at Him and then I didn't believe in Him. That's not a place to be. But we have so many tragedies in this world. We have disasters. We have genocide. So many horrible things have happened. And so many times people have have called out and said, Lord, if You had been there, You could have prevented this. The early Christians, think about the martyrdom right at the beginning of the church. Lord, if you'd been there, the Lord could have stopped that, right? But he didn't. What about plagues that happened over the centuries? 
What about things even in the past century, the Soviet Union, the terrible, terrible things that happened there, something like 60, 63 million people in the Ukraine who were wiped out by that, by that horrible system? What about the Holocaust? Couldn't, couldn't God have stopped Hitler? What about Oklahoma City and the guy blowing up that building? Lord, if you'd been there, you could have stopped that. Columbine, 9-11, Katrina, Aurora, Colorado last year, Newtown, Newtown, Connecticut, just, just in December. Lord, if you'd been there. Or West Webster, Lord, if you'd been there. So I want to look at three things from this text today. Jesus' timing, Jesus' reaction, and ultimately Jesus' solution. Let's look at the timing. First of all, we see a delay. Imagine if you're one of the disciples there as the passage begins. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified with it, through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Imagine being one of the disciples. He's going to stick around two more days. Wait, what are you doing? This guy's sick. Why are you waiting here? They must have been completely confused by that. They must have been stunned by that. And then, then Jesus goes down to Judea where his life would be endangered. And then he implored the disciples to be faithful in this. They had to be so confused. He's sticking around here. This guy is dying. But... But he said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And who is that light? That light was Jesus. The light shines in the darkness and that darkness has not overcome it. Walking in the light means walking in the light of Jesus, in the light of the world who has come. So he says to them, be faithful, trust me in this. And then he explained to them that Lazarus had died. He said after saying these things, uh, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And of course they thought that he meant he was sleeping and you know, if he was ill, rest would have been good, right? But they explained, he explained to them that Lazarus has died. And for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. For your sake, I am glad. They must have, they didn't have duct tape then, but they must have felt like wrapping their head in it because it was going to explode because of these things. They could not understand what was he doing. And we see in verse 17, four days, four days Lazarus had been dead before Jesus got there. Why four days? Some sources say that it's because of a Jewish myth that the soul hung out around the body for about three days before moving on and then finally would move on. So if it was four days, that would be evidence that he was really dead. We can think about that too. You think about stories of people who have died and they may be, or seem like they've died, and they may be laying there unconscious, maybe shallowly breathing. 
maybe before some of the uh, medical technology we have now, people would have thought, okay, they're gone, they're dead. So having somebody come back from being really out, that may not prove anything. And certainly showed that the body was definitely dead. Remember, surely by now there must be an odor. The body had started to decay. There was no question that Lazarus was dead. It's not like you can go over to Moscow right now. Lenin's tomb is still there. 89 years later, he's pumped full of formaldehyde and whatever other embalming fluid. The body still looks probably as cold as Lenin was in life, but it's still there in one piece, and you can see it. It's not like that then without that. That's why they had all the ointment and perfumes to to cover up that smell that would be coming. So, first thing we see here is a delay. We see a delay in timing that we don't understand, but Jesus understood the the delay. And we see disappointment. We see disappointment in what happened. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She says, Lord, if you had been here. Martha trusted that Jesus would resurrect Lazarus. She wasn't really thinking short term here. She, she had solid faith that on that last day, he would rise again, like all believers. But there was a disappointment from her. She's like, well, okay, I know you're going to work this out, but if you'd just been here, he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have gone through this. We wouldn't be here mourning. She was disappointed. She was disappointed, yet she was still trusting. But she was disappointed in that current situation. I think you could say she was disappointed even in Jesus. Even though she believed Him, even though she trusted Him, she was disappointed. We do see a peak here at the solution where we're going. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. So we've seen delay that's confusing. We've seen disappointment. And then from Mary we see doubt. Lord, if you had been here. Martha went and called her sister Mary and said to him, the teacher said to her, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus said not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And when the Jews were with her in the house consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And 
that verse we know so well, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? So we see here, doubt. Could he, could he not also have, have kept this man from dying? Well, of course he could. Of course he could. But they were doubting his motivation and not preventing his death. We see the questioning through the delay, a questioning in disappointment and a questioning here in doubt. But what we also see here is perfect timing. God's perfect timing. Jesus had a plan and it was perfectly timed. Where we are now, where we see God's providence working, we can't tell what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. And so when we don't see the full picture, we can start to doubt what's going on. Yet the timing here was perfect. It was perfect to display God's glory. But aren't we like this ourselves? Don't we constantly, sometimes more than others, don't we doubt, don't we question God's timing and action in things? Remember what God said to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or as Pastor Reed reminds us so often from Deuteronomy 29.29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's revealed a plan for us. He's revealed His Word to us. Yet we're always trying to peer in and question and decipher what it is He's trying to do. Another way to describe this perfect timing and this perfect enveloping of issues and the progress of things is providence. God has planned for all that happens. He's moving His creation toward a goal. He has declared the end from the beginning. How many times have you yourself looked back in your life and been able to say, hey, I couldn't see it at the time, but I can see here how God was working. For some of us, maybe it was something that happened 25, 30 years ago that led to something that's happened recently or something that led you to Christ, maybe. You couldn't see it at the time, but now you can look back and say, oh, I see God was at work. We might say, Lord, if you were there, but oh, He was there all right. It can be difficult for us, though, can't it? We just see what's going on in the here and now, of course. And around us we see the effects of man's sin and rebellion. That's where these things come from. Disease and disaster and so forth. It's confusing. The Apostle Paul, he used the word perplexed to describe this. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So while providence is moving us, moving all of creation to this really glorious end, the steps along the way can be really upsetting to us. It can even make us very angry. And that's the next thing I want to get to here, is Jesus' reaction. The ESV says, Jesus was deeply moved. Some publications of the ESV have a, have a footnote, and they say an alternate reading of that might be indignant. So I was scratching my head at that. Those, those footnotes can throw you for a loop sometimes. We get the idea from deeply moved that Jesus was saddened. It's, it's right near where it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, around Mary and Martha at that time were weepers. Actually, professional weepers they had at the time. And when we see in the next chapter that, uh, that, that Mary would pour out this whole jar of ointment, like a pound, and they say that was probably worth $30,000, you can, you can tell why some of the disciples were upset. They were a family of means. If they could afford that, they had some money. And so you've got to expect they could hire the best professional weepers that money could buy in Bethany. So there's all this weeping and wailing going on, and certainly you would be moved by that. But there's more there than that. The, the words have a little more depth to them. Some of the commentators say it's, it's more of a case of of rebuke or a stern feeling or even in being indignant. But some anger and some displeasure mixed in with the sadness. We could see that Jesus very rightfully can be angered by Lazarus' death. And that he would be angered by death in general. Why? Why would it be right for Jesus to be so angry about death? Well, first of all, death was not part of God's first created order. We think back, we've been going through this on Wednesday nights. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. The garden, peace, plenty, no worry. Just a, just a wonderful place and a place, you know, you stay away from that tree and don't eat of it. Well, not stay away, that was the devil's part, right? Don't eat of that tree. And you can live here in perpetuity. It's a wonderful place. But man rebelled. And so, as Romans tells us, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death was brought in. Death was brought in by our rebellion. So God, God does not like death. That was not part of the created order. And we see that death will be defeated. He's going to defeat it. He's going to wipe it out. He sent His Son to do that. He hated death so much, He sent His Son to put an end to it. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus came to defeat death. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Everywhere he went, we see this, everywhere in his journey, in his ministry, he brought people back from the dead. I don't think we can think of a, a place 
in the Gospels where he saw a dead body and said, I'll just leave it there. No, he brought the little girl. He, he, he brought Lazarus back from life, back from dead to life. It's one of the signs of the Messiah. This whole part of John up through here is all these signs showing that Jesus is the Messiah. So we know that, know that Jesus does not, does not like death. And I think we can see that it's okay for him to be angry about death. And that death will be no more when he has his final victory. And I love this from Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we see Jesus here angry at death and terribly sorrowful at death. So it's right for us who are made in God's image also to have some anger and sorrow at death. It's also right for us and it's expected of us to have hope. But it is wrong for us to be angry at God and to blame Him when we see a death happen. It's humanity that brought death into creation. And God brought His Son into creation to defeat death. God has supplied the solution to death. And that brings us to the third point, the solution. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And this indeed is the solution. Probably what it kept me from about a dozen years of being personally destructive if I had understood that at the time. I hope you understand this here today. Those of you who have come to know Christ have understood that He came in our place. He came and lived that perfect life, lived as a Jew under the law and fulfilled that perfectly lived a spotless life, was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And going to that cross and feeling the complete power of the Father's wrath, He took our punishment. He stood condemned in our place. And those, those who turn to Him in true faith and repentance are spared from this eternal death. They would see this in a little bit more of a temporal, immediate way when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Here was Lazarus after four days. He was very dead. I mean, decaying, stinking. As the King James says, surely by now he stinketh. A friend of mine, his... his uh, his son likes to hear from the King James, and when he was little, he said, Daddy, uh, bring out the stinketh Bible. <laughs> but, uh, but after four days, he was very dead. He was decayed. He was dying. He was stinking. Isn't that our state before we come to Christ? Isn't that what God saw in us? Decaying, rotting, stinking, dead in our trespasses and sins, 
in which we once walked, as Ephesians 2 reminds us. If you're a Christian here today, you too once were hopeless and helpless without God. You were hopeless. Well, like Jesus was calling to Lazarus, Jesus also calls you who haven't turned to Him. Have you heard Him call out? I know He's called out here. He called out Eric, come out. Call out Kenny, come out. And Greg, Christina, come out. Called a whole bunch of you by name. Who among us today is He calling? Who is He calling to come out be stripped off of those grave clothes. Maybe one of you here today. The Bible tells us today is the day of your salvation. And if you're one who's been troubled by these things, starting to see these things, I just pray the Holy Spirit would work in you now and you would hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come out. God's timing. God's timing is always perfect, though we can't see it, especially in times of disaster and grief. Sometimes in situations like this where tragedy is struck, sometimes people can just sort of kind of flatly and maybe without enough emotion or feeling behind it, just blurt out Romans 8.28 and just say, oh, everything works out. But if we really think about it, We can trust when it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. There have been some terrible, awful things we've had to each experience, or may yet experience. Uh, We can't sugarcoat that. Jesus promised us that the Christian life would be one of suffering. And there are going to be times when things are going to be awfully difficult and dark. But even if it's not until we're in glory, we're going to be able to look back and say, okay, I see how God was using that for His purpose. He was molding me, shaping me, refining me as in a fire through that. The last verse of that great old hymn, This is my Father's world. These are such great words. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. So God's timing is providence. It's perfect. It's for His glory. God's response. God hates death. And if you missed the point before, He hates death so much He sent His Son so that there would be no more death. That it would be ended, no more weeping, no more crying. What an amazing thing that is, that the Son of God would would come down, insert Himself into this decaying, rotting place and raise saints to glory to be with Him. That's the solution. God's solution to death is His Son. Let me pass along one more thought that even in these times of sorrow or anger or difficulty, we can find some grace. Let me tell you the, uh, the rest of the story. How 
I've learned that I found grace through my anger at my cousin Jane's death and funeral. You see, before that funeral, before I was sitting there, I had thought that I was okay. I thought I knew Christ. I thought I was going to heaven. And why? Back when I was 14 years old, my uh, uncle, who had become some sort of a Baptist minister, I don't really know the details, uh, he did my grandmother's funeral. And during the time of praying, he says, okay, everybody here who wants to see your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, if you want to see her again in heaven, raise your hand. So I raised my hand. And afterwards he said, no, that means you're saved. And then uh, I had a friend in high school who was pretty evangelistic in his attitude, but he didn't really tell the whole story. He said, hey, look at this. Read this prayer. Say this out loud. And if you say that, you'll be saved. You're going to heaven. So I said to myself, my 15, 16-year-old self, okay, I'll read that. So... I'd had uh, an uncle and a friend and probably other people along the way who sold me a fire insurance policy. But none of them ever explained the gospel to me. And so, here's where the grace comes in. You wouldn't think about it this way. But my anger at God and finally my assessment that God did not exist, that was grace. And here's why. Because I was no longer under the illusion that I was His. So I spent about a dozen years living as if God didn't exist. And I can see now, looking back at that providence, that that was grace. That He showed me I didn't believe in Him. And that, that paved the way for me hearing the Gospel for real and turning to Him and believing Him. Now I don't presume to say that all these events happened so that that grace would happen to me. God is way too complex in His providence to say that one thing happens, but when you think of the providence and the things that have happened for each one of us, and that they're all happening simultaneously in the mind of God, it's just stunning. That, that's how big providence is. That's how amazing and wonderful our God is. So, even though we see tragedy and terrible things, we also can look for signs of grace. Our anger should not be, cannot be at God. And the end of tragedy is indeed happening when His Son returns. So, so do not lose heart. And I'd like to close with these words from Second Corinthians. Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, and that's what it is, a blink of an eye, time goes by so quickly. This is a light, momentary affliction. And it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is eternal. His love is eternal. Our time with Him will be eternal. Our time with one another will be eternal. These things will all pass away. This tragedy, 
this death, these things that afflict us, it'll go away. So when we say, Lord, if you had been there, when you're tempted to say that, take a pause and remember, the Lord has been there. He's been carrying you through all of this. Let's pray. Father, sometimes indeed we are perplexed. You know the end from the beginning. We can't even see past the end of our own nose. We know you have all things worked out for us. We know what awaits us is so wonderful and glorious. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we can't see. But Father, you are so good. You sent your Son to do what we couldn't. And you sent him to defeat the death and misery that our race brought into this world. We are so grateful. We praise you. We look forward with great anticipation to that day when you will be around us as our God and us as your people. Thank you for our time together today. And bless these saints gathered together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Oh.